just read it, but it's a short passage. Um, and so there's the, the title of the talk, Looking to a New Year. But let's read the passage uh, again. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So is this really a day about New Year's? Because you notice there it's on the seventh month of the first day. So let me try to make a case for New Year's Day here. Is this really New Year's Day? Well, yes and no, but mostly yes. This day, um, the first day of the seventh month, is known in the Jewish calendar now and has been for millennia as Rosh Hashanah, the, the head of the year, the first day, the new year. But it says here it's in the seventh month, and if you look over in verse 5 of this chapter, it says in the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is Passover. So how is it that this is New Year's when the month of Nisan is um, the first month, according to Leviticus. How did the seventh month begin to come to be the first month in the Hebraic and Jewish thinking? Well, the, the ancient Hebrew calendar is a vast and confusing topic. Um, it's kind of akin to understanding slavery in the First Testament, New, New, you know, New Testament world, first century New Testament world. Um, it's really a lot. And so part of the problem was they followed a lunar calendar. And so every year there was going to be some days short from a solar calendar. And how do you account for that when the days are said to fall on specific times in the month? All of this, it gets very, very complex. And uh, there are four different calendars that I know of. I'm sure there are more. But there are four different calendar systems that have been proposed as to how they did it. And, and it just becomes uh, a bit much. And I can't really... Uh, explain all that to you, but I can kind of s focus in on this question and maybe uh, explain it a little bit. The main thing to note with the Feast of Trumpets is the seventh month was the end of the agricultural year and the beginning of the next agricultural cycle. So for the Jews who were uh, farmers and agrarians, that was a really important time. The, the barley harvest would have come in early in the spring. That was actually what the book of Ruth is about, was that harvest. And then the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost is when the wheat would have come in and the vegetables and, and fruits and things like that. And then just before this time would have been the grapes and the olives. And so this seventh month, seven being so important in the Old Testament system, right? This seventh month was this great moment of all of the produce, all of the harvests coming in. And right after these festivals, the rains would start. And the rains would come, and if it was a good year, they would extend clear to the month of Nisan, which would be in March. Um, and the seventh month, Tishri, would be September or October, somewhere around there. And, and so the, the rains would loosen up the soil and soften it up and planting would begin. So this seventh month with the Feast of Trumpets and then the Day of Atonement and then the Feast of Booths was this kind of culmination of the year. 
where the farmers could sit back and had a little bit of time for reflection because the workload was, was a bit lighter. What happened in the past year and what was going to happen in the new year, much as we do with New Year's Day? And you can see how it began to take that flavor of the new year. The Day of Atonement that follows this passage here in our text in verse 26 and following was the most solemn day of the year. And so it quickly became that the Feast of Trumpets was a, a time announcing the preparation and the thinking through of one's life in for this system reset of the Day of Atonement when all of the sins of all of the people would be dealt with by the high priest at the tabernacle or the temple. And so it quickly, not quickly, but it slowly became that this day was considered to be the end and the beginning. And so became New Year's Day. Certainly by the end of the uh, Old Testament into the intertestamental period, Rosh Hashanah had taken its place as New Year's Day. So we're going to look at it that way. We're going to look at it, even though it's the seventh month, as that time where one cycle is coming to an end and another cycle is beginning. A New Year's Day type of thing. How can this short passage encourage us, through the example of Israel, to take time for the spiritual preparation that we need for this coming year? That's the question at hand. I want to spend the most time on this one, so don't panic. Um, and what I'd like to do is just kind of talk through these things as they, what they meant to them, and then we're going to run back through them Say, okay, what do they mean to us? Because we're in a different covenant than what they are. We're in Jesus' covenant. And so what does a memorial mean to them? What does it mean to us? So let's talk about them first. Memorials and memory are very significant things, both in the law and in the Old Testament. But they're, they're maybe a little bit different than what we think of them, because we think of them in terms of forgetting, right? We remember things. But, but often in the Old Testament, as we'll see God is the subject of memorials. And I assume we're all going to agree that God doesn't forget. So, so a memorial means something more than just bringing back something that one has forgotten. It's, it's something that one needs to take notice of and pay attention to. Uh, I, I remember a number of years ago, we went to Gettysburg, the, the battlefield, which is close to where I was born and, and spent the first few years of life. And we looked anxiously for the monument to the Pennsylvania regiments because we thought at that time that one of my, um, one of my relatives, my ancestors, had been in the battle. Turns out he enlisted afterwards. But, but nonetheless, the monument was something really personal and important to me. But it wasn't just that I had a relative there or the number, you know, over 50,000 people, over 50,000 casualties, the men and women who were participated. It wasn't just them. It's that something really significant had happened there. That there was a reason that they gave their lives for this. That the unity and governance of our country was at stake and how it would function. That the freedom and dignity of an entire race of people was at stake. That the economic cohesion that would allow us to advance and become the economic power that we are was at stake at that time too. There were big things that these people gave their lives for. And I think we need to think about these memorials in the Old Testament in that way. They're not just remembering things. They're remembering that there is something bigger than who we are. There's something bigger that is going to govern how we live. And that bigger thing 
is the covenant, the agreement that Israel had with its God, the pact for him to be their God and for their, them to be his people. And so that covenant was what needed to be remembered, and memory kept that relationship alive. These memorials were times that were given to them to remember who they were and that they were being uh, governed and living by the context of the covenant for their life. John Hartley in his commentary says, Israel believed that her future was determined by God's acting towards his people in remembrance of his promises to them. When God acted in memory of what he had promised, that determined the very future of the nation of Israel. So it's important stuff, isn't it? So on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would get all of his, his colorful garb on and, and he would put on the breastplate, which had 12 stones in it, and each stone was inscribed with the name of a tribe of Israel, and he walked into the holy place before God, it says in Exodus that when he goes into the holy place to bring them, to bring the people of Israel to regular remembrance before the Lord. Now, did God forget? No. But they knew that it was an occasion that when they brought in, that what was center place was that he was their God and they were his people. It was a reminder that they had this significant covenant. The grain offering in Leviticus 2 is said to be a memorial. The same thing was offered to God. It's a reminder that there is something that is bigger than, than the people of Israel, that God has agreed to be their God. They have agreed to be his people. Uh, even calls to battle. Um, can be memorials for God to, uh, to remind him. Um, and then these feasts, of course. <clears throat> and Numbers 10 says the same thing, that these feasts are a reminder of you before your God. And so they were times where the people knew that God was, was being reminded, if you will, that he was the leader, the protector, the warrior, the provider, the benefactor of Israel. But there were also memorials that reminded the people that they were to be faithful to him. And so the Passover is considered a memorial. It's a time where they reflect about on what God had done in bringing them out of Egypt. And they were to commemorate that every year to remember God's faithfulness to them and their covenant to be faithful back to him. Battles and the stories of them were considered to be memorials. Remember that story where, where uh, Moses uh, was on the mountain as Joshua and the Israelites fighted the Malachites, and as long as he had his hands up, the Israelites would, would be winning. But if he had dropped his hands down, then the Amalekites would advance, and they had to prop his arms up. It says at the end of that to write it down as a memorial so that you remember that God has kept his promises, therefore you keep yours as the people entered into the land. So they have a memorial coming out of the Passover, and as they come into the land, they're to take big stones out of the River Jordan, and they're to pile them up, and that's a memorial. And it says in the text that in coming years, when a, when a child asks his dad, what do these stones mean? The answer is, they remind you that God kept his promises, and they're there so that you will know that he is mighty, and you'll fear him all of your life. 
that memorial is a reminder that your life is dictated by an agreement between God and his people, and that's how you should live. So these memorials are powerful things about how God's people are to live. And, and before we pass on, let me just say that they're still important. When Jesus at the supper picked up the cup and he says, this is the covenant in my blood, he said then, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. And so these are powerful things. So this day was a memorial for the people to remember uh, what God had done for them, who they were as God's people. The next one is that it's a proclaimed memorial. The study of trumpets in the Old Testament is really fascinating. It comes into the New Testament too where it says the trumpet is going to blast before the Lord comes. Trumpets were announced um, meetings with God. They were God's way of signaling to his people. They might be signaling that it's to the soldiers that it's time for battle. They could be signaling that it's time to gather together. Remember at Sinai in Exodus 19, the trumpet sounded before God descended on the mountain. So these, these trumpets were important. In fact, there are two silver trumpets that were built for the wilderness days through which God and through his priests could signal to the people. So they were used at sacrifices, but mostly to assemble God's people together, to, pre to let them know that this was impending and so that they should make the preparations and the necessary uh, things that they needed to do in order to meet with God. Now, three times a year, the Israelites were to pilgrimage to Jerusalem. This day was not one of them. So on this day, I presume that in, throughout the land in the little villages that the local uh, off-duty priests or whoever would make an announcement, probably blow some kind of a, a ram's horn, to announce that in, this, in the villages in this day, it was still a solemn day um, and that they were going, coming to meet God. The next thing is that this meeting was to be a day of solemn rest. Now, this is obviously um, tied into the Sabbath. In fact, this was a special Sabbath day. And uh, they weren't to do any ordinary work. This was a day that was set aside for God. It wasn't a day for potlucks or get-togethers. It was a day that they were to be focused solely on Him. And all priorities were to be laid aside. Ordinary work means occupational work. And so the men were not to be in the fields or in the shops. The women were to prepare the food beforehand, kind of like manna. They got extra food the day before so they didn't have to go and gather. They would prepare the day before so that they didn't have to cook. This was a day of solemn rest, which meant not that they were to be tied up into the legalisms of what they could and couldn't do. That developed later on uh, in time. They were to be focused in on who God was and who they were vis-a-vis -vis Him. And so the preparations were to be made for this day of focusing upon God, the first day of the seventh month. And then it was a holy convocation. 
And this is a sacred assembly. These these were days that were called by God. In verse 2 of this, it says that you will proclaim my holy convocations, my appointed festivals. These were divinely dictated and they were divinely focused. These were days where you stop and gather together and you're my people. And so it's not just, hey, we're just going to relax at home. There was corporate worship. There was corporate getting together to, to worship God, much as we're doing right here, for Him to be the focus. Um, in the Old Testament, this word is sometimes used to describe gatherings to hear God's word. If you think of the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah where they did that, of services in the temple courts, Isaiah used it. And so this, this gathering for worship is what this day was about. So you can see it's a kind of a significant day when we start unpacking all these little elements. And then finally, gifts and offerings. Now, this is a bit of a disputed word. Some of you might have a translation that says offerings by fire. There's a word there that they're not sure if it, if it derives from fire, or if it derives from gift, or if it derives from food offerings. Um, but I think it's kind of clear, given all the evidence, that these were days that the Israelites were to worship God by bringing their sacrifices and offerings to him that it was a sign of their relationship with him through his home there at the tabernacle, that they would bring offerings and gifts to him. And Numbers 10, uh, I'm sorry, Numbers 29 lists those out. I've got it here. The first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. That's the same as our text. You blow the trumpets, same. And then it says you shall bring a burnt offering for pleasing aroma to the Lord. One bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish, a grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, one-tenth for the seven lambs, the male goat for the sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides, on top of, the burnt offering of the new moon, which happened at every start of every month, and its grain offering, and the regular burnt offering that happened each day. So, so it's not like you stop those offerings, it's this seventh month, these were additional ones. And they were heavily uh, influenced, heavy emphasis on atonement, on the people recognizing, admitting, embracing, seeking the forgiveness of God through the sacrificial system that they needed because the, the covenant agreement that the memorial is about had been stretched and tarnished and troubled by their sins through the year. And so it was this chance for them, this one day, prepare, to think, to ponder, to worship of who they were as God's people, who he was as their God, and to uh, spend their time thinking about that. So those are the elements of the feast day. And you can see how it would easily become a time of thinking of the past year, looking forward to the new year, how the Feast of Trumpets became the day that led into the 10 days of thinking about one's status vis-a-vis God leading up to the most solemn day of, day of atonement. So what does it mean for us as we approach our new, new year in our covenant? Well, the first thing that I want to say <coughs> is what I mentioned um, Uh, 
that and we're looking to a new year, we are not in this covenant. Uh, Jesus is the foundation for us and the forgiveness of our sins. So thankfully, we are not bringing in animals here to sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. That's pretty uh, messy stuff. I remember once uh, I was in Africa and and uh, at the end of the service, a woman came forward and her offering was a chicken, a live chicken that was had its feet bound and and she put it there on the altar. That was her offering. It was pretty uh, stunning for me. And yet, that's what worship used to be. But our lamb has been sacrificed for us. Jesus, who is the day of atonement sacrifices and the Passover sacrifice combined, has provided for us the forgiveness of sins that has stretched and tarnished and broken our covenant relationship with God. He has healed it through his death. And so our covenant is uh, the, the fulfillment of this covenant, and um, we look to him for what he has done for us. Now, it's still a great exercise to ponder how he acknowledged these things as we apply them. How did he understand and deal with God's appointed feasts? There's quite a bit in the Gospels about that. How did he approach the time spent with his with his father. There's a lot there too. How did he perceive memorials? These are all great studies for the new year. But uh, we're just going to keep moving on here. The first, the memorial tells us that we need to have a constant remembrance of who we are as God's people. Who we really are as his children. Uh, It's not just a matter of forgetting, although for us humans that's certainly a point of consideration, isn't it? But it's actually that we are to have that relationship with God as the driving force of our lives that governs what we do and think. And the importance of this is that it is the defeat of the memorial that is Satan's intent in temptation. James says that when we are lured and we are enticed away, our desire comes for something other than that which pleases God. We, we need that tunnel vision in temptation for it to succeed. That that's the only thing that matters. That everything else will fall into place. We just need that. That's what temptation is. But the memorial is opposed to that. In fact, it's focused on defeating that perspective. That our constant perspective in life is we are his people in covenant with him. And that's the power of of say the Psalms, right? Psalm 119, where it says, how does a young man or an older guy keep uh, his way pure? According to your word. By devoting our hearts to it, keeping our covenant there because we have hidden, I've stored up your word in my heart. Guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart. So the memorials are reflection for us to think through this year. How are we going to keep that perspective front and center of the days of this year so that we might not fall to the snares of the evil one? The trumpets tell us that a vibrant relationship with God requires preparation. This is something that as busy Americans we have um, sometimes rationalized away, sometimes just... We're too busy to think about it. 
Now, it is true that we have immediate access with God. We're seated in the heavenlies with Christ, and, and we have that immediate access that we can approach God. But nonetheless, we need to remember that our hearts and our minds are going to, it's going to take time, it's going to take effort to focus in on Him, to spend time with Him in a way in which we are transformed by Him. And so the trumpet announcement that God is coming and prepare for His coming is a, a reminder to us that it takes work and effort to align ourselves and our hearts with God and Christ. The solemn rest reminds us that we need to be still. Again, it comes back to that matter of time, doesn't it? Psalm 37 says, Be still and, uh, and before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. The very end of Psalm 27, wait upon the Lord. The idea that God is worth stopping the priorities of our life for. Again, thinking of Jesus, think of the example of Him removing Himself from the busyness of life in order to commune with His Father. Time and focus are the point of this day here. And they're extremely difficult, but that's what's necessary and that's the point of the preparation. So that worship can happen because we have stopped the other priorities. We are still before Him, waiting for Him to commune with us and for us to commune with Him. That's the Sabbath intent. And I think, I don't want to go too far down this because it's a huge topic, but I do think that we need to be careful that sometimes, though we have rightly jettisoned a lot of the legalities and legalism of Sabbath observance, We've lost the intent. And Sunday has become a day where we, yeah, we, maybe we give them a couple hours in the morning. But we haven't, as in busy, busy Americans, set the day aside to be His and to worship Him and to have that time and focus there. The next one, the Holy Convocation, meeting with His people. The Christian life cannot be lived alone. And if it is lived alone, it is not a Christian life. And, and that's not, that's not a, a statement to be nuanced or, or uh, given any kind of uh, adjustments to. A Christian life is a life that is lived within the people of God. God has always been about creating a people under the headship of His Son, the body that we are members together. And so we are... Uh, we're part of this body. He's not creating individuals, although individuals make up the whole. He's creating a whole of which we are parts. And so we, we are to be one anothering. We are to be with each other. His priority, even from of old, was that there would be a people gathered around him. Just as we read in Revelation, so it was in Leviticus. Biblical priority of God's to have his people gathered around with him. And so the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 is speaking to these people who are having their homes stolen away and, their, pro and their, their things gone and they're under persecution. He says, don't forget to meet together. Don't forget to provoke one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is a habit of some is. Encouraging one another. As the day, as you see the day drawing near. The day, by the way, which will be announced with trumpets. Um, and so this isn't like, uh, we'll come to church every Sunday type of thing. But it is a statement that you are part of something bigger than you. 
And part of your year has to be, how are we going to play that out? How are we going to be one anothering? Whether it's in church services or whether it's in other meetings or whether it's in fellowship group or whether it's discipling. How is the holy convocation value that God has of Leviticus going to play out in your life this week? Not this week, this year. And finally, a heart focused on worship. Our covenant relationship, again, is based on the forgiveness of sins that Jesus accomplished as the ultimate fulfillment of all these Old Testament pictures. It's not based on animal sacrifices. But the New Testament, and and the Old Testament too, does say that the sacrifices of a repentant and contrite heart are pleasing to God in the Psalms. In Romans 12, it says that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices for His service. And Hebrews 13 says that our praise is a sacrifice to Him. And so these are ways that we can give gifts to Him that, that match the intent of these more physical things of the Old Testament, but accomplish the very values that we have, that we are coming to Him, to meet with Him, in stillness to proclaim Him as our priority, as we listen to Him and hear what He has to say to us and worship Him, to be part of His body that His Son gave His life to bring and to put together Jew and Gentile in one new man, who we are was to be celebrated on this day. Well, there's a lot that Moses packed into those few verses, isn't there? And may it be that was what was for one day in ancient Israel be every day for us in this new year. Days of intimacy with God, of recognition of who we are, of elevating Him as our priority and our object of worship, because this Old Testament picture has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that to our great benefit and to the glory of the Father. So let's take a few moments to just think about these things, how they resonate with our lives, and then we'll come and sing our final song.